0: Last week on the Gems of History podcast, we covered the Lewis and Clark story that you were most likely taught in high school. This version highlights the men as trailblazers, exploring the wilderness that no one had ever been in. This version centers around the fact that Lewis and Clark were exploring unseen lands and started from scratch. This week on the Gems of History podcast, however, we will be diving into a different point of view, the Native American point of view. You just have to do like the uh, the intro music, but with like the classic um, or to like the rhythm of colors of the wind from Pocahontas. <laughs>
1: or like change all the instruments to pan flutes or something. Oh, like just that. so many flutes. <laughs> Dude, there was a me and a group of guys. This was probably four years ago now. We're at an we Applebee's. <laughs> we went to Summerfest to go see Skillet and it was oh, nice. so bad. Like we were so bored oh. that we decided to just go walk around and we found this. Peruvian pan flute band that was just playing by the lake at Summerfest. We were all pretty drunk at this point. yeah. So we're just like, let's hang out here. And we just vibed with them for literally like an hour. It was so fun. We just kept... Getting other people passing by to dance with us and stuff, it was a blast.
0: That literally sounds like a side quest,
1: it yeah, pretty much. That That's it, so cool! <laughs> was so much like you walk into an undiscovered area and right. you just find this thing, yeah. It
0: was super fun. So, yeah, Peruvian I, pan flute. I don't said? know,
1: I think it was a Peru. there. It was a pan flute band. Got I don't it. know if they were actually Peruvian or not, but sure. I know that like most of the pan flute bands that I've heard of are from Peru, yes. So,
0: <laughs> as I'd as I've also heard. But it, yeah.
1: they, they loved it. Like, they were so happy that there was people there that were excited. I, I'm sure they knew that we were hammered. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But yeah, we were getting, like, all these passerbys to dance and stuff. It was a lot of fun. That's cool. It's so, like, yeah, the, it's go like, on side quest people.
0: Yeah. It's like the uh, drummers on the buckets. Yeah. They're always around Summerfest. Like, they are the ultimate It's Like, what's that actually, like, fire sound? And it's just four to five teenagers wailing on buckets. And you hear it from a mile away.
1: Oh, my God, yeah. Speaking of hearing it from a mile away, welcome to the Gems of History podcast, everybody. I'm your host, Jacob Shop with Evan Roosh.
0: Howdy. A mile away, huh?
1: That's how annoying we are.
0: Oh, yeah. (laughs) People know when we enter a room. They say earworms
1: are like good things sometimes. We're not one of those. (laughs) We're the sandworms from Dune.
0: Oh, my gosh. Well, I guess I need to work out now. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, big, big shoes to fill. Do they um, wear shoes? No, they don't wear shoes. I can't imagine that worms wear shoes. They could.
1: I don't know, man. God's got some beautiful creations.
0: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) What do you think he was thinking when he made the worm? He's like, you know what? The earth needs inhabitants. I want to see... Meaning the the inner earth. (laughs) I want to see
1: something that you can cut in half and then it just
0: doesn't matter. Right. (laughs) Now that's the craziest thing about just anatomy of animals. Because either side could be the head. It's so weird. That's kind of cool. Worms are weird. Worms are cool, though. I wish they were prettier. I will say that. That is true.
1: But uh, yeah, I I also wish that they didn't like...
0: Worm. (laughs) Yeah, just be creepy. Yeah, like creepy crawlers.
1: Yeah, but what are you gonna do, you know? Be like that sometimes. Be like that. How are you doing today, Ev?
0: We're doing good. Doing good. Uh, Vivi, uh, the other black lab that... uh, Well, one of my black labs, I guess I should say. say The other one. The other one. uh, She got a little kennel cough this week, and... We woke up in the middle of the night and just thinking, like, is there a goose in the house? Like, if you've ever, have your dogs ever had kennel cough? Uh,
1: Our old dog did, but.
0: Yeah, it's like, you know that sound. It's just like, (laughs) huh? Yeah. (laughs) And it's kind of like, it's like, she's completely fine now. But at the time, we're like, what the heck is that? But like, she also hasn't seen any other dogs. I was going to say, was she in a kennel? No, she hasn't seen any other dogs besides Zuki. And like, Zuki doesn't have it. Yeah. So we just keep on making jokes like, "Viv, are you sneaking out at night to see boys?" Hey, she's at that age. Yeah, rambun- rambunctious teenager.
1: Have you ever seen the videos of the dogs that get kennel cough that sound like humans coughing? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> like that would be unsettling. Yeah, that'd be wake very up in freaky. the middle of the night to that.
0: It's like great. She's a skin crawler. Yeah,
1: exactly. <laughs> Uh, speaking of skinwalkers, we are skinwalkers. Talk- walkers, thank you. Yes. I knew what you meant. Uh, we're going to be talking more about, uh, Native American side of things today. So as Evan did in the intro read, we, uh, talked about the Lewis and Clark expedition, the accepted narrative, like the heroic white men who traveled west against all odds, that kind of thing.
0: Right. Conquered the untamed wilderness filled with savages. Exactly. Per our literal history books. <laughs> so we,
1: we covered that side of it last week. And this week, we're going to be, as I mentioned in the last episode, it's going to be a little more discussion-based. We do have kind of a, a flow that we're going to follow, but yeah, yeah we're, it's going to be more talking points on this one. We're going to be covering York, who, as we mentioned, was the enslaved- person that was along on the expedition who belonged to William Clark. We're going to talk about the uh, rampant venereal disease that ripped through the core of Discovery. And, yeah, um, a
0: whole lot of sex. Yeah, happened. then we'll
1: talk about... Uh, at the, the second half is going to be more focused on talking to the Native American point of view and especially Sacagawea. That I think that's what I'm going to refer to her as through this episode. There's mm-hmm. multiple ways, depending on which tribe you talk to, that they spell her name out. So Sacagawea is also, I think, acceptable. And then there's also one that spells it with another K instead of a G or a J. So there's multiple ways to do it. But I think I'm going to call her Sacagawea. But yeah, we'll get to all of that stuff.
0: Sacagawea is also much more pretty than Sacagawea, Yeah. I will say. true. <laughs> the pronunciation of it, at least. It
1: also sounds more powerful, so. Oh,
0: absolutely. Yeah.
1: So, yeah, we'll be getting into all of that today. Uh, should we jump in right away? Is there anything you wanted to mention before we get started, or?
0: No, I mean, the only preface for this, I mean, we talked about it quite a bit last week, Lewis and Clark, and their Coral Discovery did accomplish a pretty cool thing. So, keep in mind, we're not truly bashing them per se. We will bash him a little bit, but it's just explaining the other half of the story that you don't get to hear. So right. when we're going through things, I don't expect anyone to get offended. Yeah. But just keep that in mind. We're not bashing, we're just explaining the story more. Yeah. And I I heard a
1: statement that was like, a lot of people don't like to dive into history, like especially mm-hmm. on this side of things, because it, it kind of represents who we are still Hmm. like we're still connected to this history this helped build to where we are now so in a way it's kind of examining a part of our life and a part of our history so a lot of people don't like to look at that because then it's a reflection on who we are so in a way that's why lewis and clark is a good contrast because if we look at it the way that the history books teach it we look better as well specifically you and me look better
0: as white men right so we look a lot better oh we gave the native americans gifts yeah like we gave them tobacco and beads like let's not and get with crazy like alcohol
1: here. which also was a detriment to their society
0: quite a bit yes
1: so yeah it, I, I thought that was an interesting perspective on it but yeah mm-hmm. we are going to be getting into uh, a little bit of the uh, stuff that you might not like to hear about lewis and clark and we're, as Evan mentioned, we will talk a little bit bad about them, but if it wasn't Lewis and Clark, it would have been someone else. So 100%. at the same time, it's just they were put into a scenario and they filled the role that they needed to fill at the time. So it's not on them entirely that this was their legacy. It's just they were in the right place at the right time for this to happen.
0: I do also wonder quite a bit if Lewis and Clark don't make it. Like, let's say they do get wiped out by diseases. I wonder if the next expedition is not as friendly of an expedition, like the follow-up one, you know? Yeah. Because it could just be misinterpreted as, oh, they were killed by Native Americans who were considered savages. Like, that's the word used by uh, Lewis and Clark in all of their journals. It's a very prevalent term at the time. So maybe the next one's not as, as peaceful.
1: Yeah, and just if Lewis and Clark don't, uh, don't lead it, how many people die. Right. Right. (laughs) Even if it does succeed without them, how many people die versus just one guy dying of a disease that wasn't even really related to the expedition they were on. Right. So, yeah, it, it could have been way different, so... Oh, all right. Let's hop right in. We're gonna start up top by talking about York. who' we're gonna start
0: with slavery, as
1: we mentioned last episode, was William Clark's enslaved laborer, and so they had Lewis and Clark had about forty men with them when they set off, and most of them were handpicked volunteers who were, as Evan mentioned, white single men, soldiers, younger guys, pretty much robust younger guys who Mm -hmm. were ready to go on this type of journey. And they were handpicked by Lewis and Clark. So it was a mishmash of single soldiers, French interpreters, a lot of diversity between the backgrounds of the adventurers, but they all had one thing in common, and that was that they were white men. Of course, Sacagawea Sacagawea would join them later on in the journey, and she would be a huge help in her own right. But one of the other things that stood out in this journey was York, who was the enslaved laborer, because obviously he's not a white man, mm-hmm. and he didn't have a choice to join. He was told that he was joining.
0: Right. It's, you are coming to the Pacific Ocean with me. Yeah. It wasn't, uh, here's a sign-up form.
1: Exactly. It wasn't, we think you're good for this, will you join us? It's, mm-hmm. we know that you're coming. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So we talked about it briefly last episode, but the Clark family settled in Kentucky after the Revolutionary War, and four of his older brothers were all helpful in making sure that the United States won the Revolutionary War. Mm -hmm. But this also meant that like a lot of people who settled a bit more south after the war, the Clark family owned slaves. Two of them, who were known as Old York and Rose, had been in the service of John Clark, who was William's father and that was back when they still lived in Virginia, and then once they moved to Kentucky, they continued on working for the Clark family. So, documents show that William Clark inherited some of these slaves when his father died in 1799, and one of them was the son of Old York and Rose, simply known as York.
0: Really happy that they didn't go with New York on that (laughs) one. Like, that would be mad disrespectful. Yeah, I mean, you would have a name of a entire state, so that'd be kind of
1: cool. But that, I guess
0: that is true.
1: But you also are like a slave in the South versus New York being a free state. So. More than
0: the, yeah, that's
1: right. <laughs> so, York, when he got inherited by William Clark, became William Clark's personal servant. He grew up with William, he served as his companion and manservant, and he was the much, th- he was like way higher up in the association with William Clark versus the other slaves that he owned. It is said that York likely slept with an earshot of William and ate in the family kitchen. He dressed in likely the hand-me-downs from William Clark, and he kind of learned just by watching to act as the upper cl- class Clark family did. So he was mm-hmm. more of like a, I don't know if you want to re- call him like a house slave or a fined slave. He wasn't just mm-hmm. a laborer in the fields.
0: Right. Like he managed the property, if yeah. I'm not mistaken. Like he, he managed um, quite a bit and had a lot of responsibility.
1: Yeah, so he he had a lot more autonomy, I mm-hmm. guess you could say, versus some of the other enslaved laborers that they had. But that's still more autonomy as a slave. So right, yeah. He couldn't learn to read or write, but he was said to be athletic, handsome, and strong, according to Portland State University professor Darnell Milner. Somewhere in the timeline, York married an enslaved woman, and we don't know her name. Her name's kind of lost to history. But shortly after they got married, York would be forced to leave his newlywed and join the Corps of Discovery. Clark's decision at the end of the day was a practical one because he knew that York would be a huge asset to the group in Mm an uh, otherwise healthy and robust young man. Because, like I just mentioned, he was athletic, handsome, strong, just he was a good asset to have on something like this. Almost immediately, York proved his helpfulness on the journey, because unlike back home, where he was prohibited from handling a firearm, York helped to hunt buffalo, geese, deer, whatever wild game the group needed to subsist on. One account recalls how York went on a 15-person hunting party in the middle of December to kill buffalo to replenish their food supplies, and almost all of the men came back with frostbite.
0: So he's doing very tough labor
1: to help this group survive.
0: <laughs> right. He's truly part of the core of discovery, but he doesn't get like the acclamations yeah. when they when all is said and done.
1: Right. Because despite him helping out so much, many of the other men were hesitant to allow York to work alongside them because a lot of them were raised in the south of the United States. So having an African American by their side was kind of an outrage to how they were brought up to view these people. And to demonstrate that frustration, only one month into the journey, one of the members of the party threw sand at York and nearly caused him to lose an eye. Yeah. So it's not harmless, just words or anything like that, that he's dealing with. He's dealing with physical attacks. Yeah, it's violent
0: actions. Like the core discovery, again, it was a mismatch.
1: Mishmash. Thank you. It was a mishmash
0: (laughs) of a ton of different backgrounds. But yeah, when it came to the color of someone's skin. They were very, they weren't kind people, is exactly. what I'm trying to say. Like, so this uh, person that's literally out there getting frostbites, hunting buffalo so that they can eat, yeah. you know, doing a ton of stuff. And
1: I mean, French and Americans are all working together and pretty much in harmony, but just because he has different colored skin is the only reason that he's singled out. Right. But eventually they had to learn to deal with it and York was accompanying Clark on scouting expeditions and when food was scarce for the party, York was actually one of only two men who was sent to the Nez Pierce for food. So he's getting put on these pretty important, I don't know if you call it missions, side quests, if we want to call them side quests. I would say it's a pretty, I think that's a main quest. <laughs> it's like getting, a pretty important quest, Locking down the food. <laughs> so he's getting important roles in a lot of this and during the winter of O... During the winter of 1805, York was even allowed to cast his vote with the rest of the party Mm -hmm. for where they were going to winter. So, granted, it was a very limited capacity, but he was allowed to vote decades before African Americans would be allowed to vote in the United States. Right, yeah. So, I mean, like I said, it's not like he's being treated equally to his white counterparts, but it's something.
0: Yeah, I mean, like we've already said, he is doing everything. He's voting. He's like... He's truly part of everything that's happening. Yeah. But just not given the the same respect. And it's very interesting because the Native Americans also took interest in York quite a bit, which I'm sure you may, may yeah. get into in a little bit, but, but in the way. Right, right. Like fascination almost. And which we like parallels throughout history when we talked about the uh, samurai episode. Yep. Uh when we talked about uh the African American samurai, I believe it's Yusuke. I'll need it. A... Yusuke, I think is Thank you. Yeah. Yes. Um but it has like the same same reaction, it was like fascination. Like, yeah.
1: Exactly. It's just like you've never seen a person like this before. Right. right. So yeah. And with the Native Americans, is kind of where one of his most important roles comes in. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of the tribes had never seen a black man before. They'd seen different types of white people. They'd seen French, Spanish, Russian, pretty they've, much
0: everyone under the sun. They've seen all the whites. Yeah, they've <laughs> seen the quilt
1: of the American white, or Yo, not even the American white. Though. It's
0: literally the quilt of the American white. It's literally just a white, plain piece of paper. Yep, <laughs> no <is>. spice. No, <laughs> literally
1: no spice. So they called York the big medicine and that was it signified that York had the power of god manifest within him like they viewed him as something anomalous mm. in nature and some of the men even asked if some of the men in the tribes even asked York if they would sleep with their wives because they were like you have power from god and that will transfer to our people through this intercourse that you have with our women and which is wild <laughs> yeah i mean that's one way to do it i guess right right there were even instances of some of the tribes not believing that york's skin color was actually real so they tried to rub his skin clean with coarse sand and the only reason that they stopped is because his skin became so raw that blood started to ooze from oh ow <laughs> and i mean that's another example though of he doesn't have a say in a lot of this. He's just got to right. stand there and let this happen. Because if he yeah. doesn't, then he's going to get yelled at by Clark. Right. Clark encouraged the Nez Pierce to closely examine York, and Clark even pushed York to, quote-unquote, perform for the tribes, acting as either a frightening monster or as a harmless dancing buffoon, showing that although York may have had a few more liberties than he did back home, he was still not respected or had, he didn't have any autonomy amongst his peers, even though Clark knew how important he was to this
0: journey. Right. Very important, but also has to put on a show. Like that's that's a very tough spot to be in. He's a useful tool is right. what he is to William Clark. Mm-hmm.
1: For the Nez Pierce, though, York's impression lasted long into the 20th century, and they called him Raven's Son for the color of his skin. And he's been, even till like the 1960s, there were still tradi- oral traditions passed down of York visiting. So that's kind of cool. Raven's Son is pretty metal. Yeah, I will that's say pretty that. sweet. So, as we mentioned, York undertook a lot of the hard work for the expedition. He built shelters, he paddled, he hunted, and. A lot of that just leaves you ill and exhausted. So a lot of Mm -hmm. the times there's reports of him being sick from the camp and he just, he had
0: a rough go of it for sure. For sure. Yeah.
1: But through all of it, he showed a lot more care and compassion to everyone on the journey than a lot of these white men did. It was said that he stewed fruit and tea for the sick Native Americans, especially the Native American women. He even attempted to help Charles Floyd before he died, who was the Mm -hmm. only member of the the group that passed away on the journey. So he's, despite his circumstance, he's a really kind, really caring person who's just honestly trying to help everybody.
0: Yeah. I mean, making medicine for the people that threw sand in your face and almost made you lose an eye, or making medicine for people who are trying to literally rub your skin off out of, like, not ignorance, but out of just not being familiar with. Um, people of that skin color like he is a pretty great man to go through all of this he's an all star for sure
1: towards the end of the journey clark got pretty sick himself and york actually dove into a river and swam to an island to gather herbal remedies for his master but despite all of this when the corp returned home york was the only one who didn't receive anything for his help with the journey While the rest of the men were partying and being hailed as heroes, the government was preparing the reward that they were to be given. Salaries and acres of land were eventually awarded to all of the men who had, quote, been to the Pacific and back, end quote. All of them except for York. According once again to Milner, who I mentioned earlier, quote, all but York enjoyed the trappings and attentions of celebrity. Just kind of left out of it. Yeah,
0: all of the duties none of the payday exactly
1: to add insult to injury clark refused to release york from his slavery despite having released a different man named ben in 1802 for doing lesser work
0: yeah like that's nuts <laughs> like clark had no sympathy no realization like that this man just did so much and gave him no rewards it's
1: i don't know if this is like out of spite i don't know if this is out of that he was so close with York compared to the rest of the slaves that he
0: owned. I think it would almost be he's too valuable of an asset, which, like, that sucks. Like, yeah. It, you do so much, and, yeah, again, you're not rewarded with anything. In fact, it almost punishes you for being so good right? Um, of a person, to be quite frank. Honestly, I, th- I kind of think about
1: York before the expedition in terms of Samuel L. Jackson from Django Unchained. Where he's kind of like mm. the house slave who's like really close with the master, not in the same way as like the movie portrays, like, right. not that he's like super sympathetic towards the white men or anything like that. Yeah. But like, that's kind of the relationship he had where he's a lot more free to do what he wants. Mm-hmm. And I think at this point is where he gets back and realizes, like, I did a lot for you. I've done a lot for you for the entire life, pretty much. Mm-hmm. And I think I deserve to kind of have my own way in life now, especially cause I have a wife and right, all that. So. And
0: also three years on the frontier. Yeah. <laughs> I
1: saved your life. Yeah. But apparently when they got back, Lewis even counseled Clark against releasing York. So I'm sure that probably had a say in it too. Mm-hmm. After the journey, York's trail in history kind of goes a bit cold, and the next mention of him is three years after the expedition returns in 1809, when York supposedly misbehaved and led to a falling out between him and Clark. So... When he says misbehaved, there was a lot of time in this where there's reports that he was just kept asking, like, I want to go back to Louisville, Kentucky to go see my wife. Mm -hmm. And now he's settling in Louisiana because that's where Clark is. Right. And he just can't see his family. And I think that's probably part of the reason why Clark said they had a falling out.
0: Yeah, a falling out like for misbehaving. And like you mentioned, truly probably just asking to see his wife. Yeah. So... Despite him asking constantly, Clark continued to refuse,
1: and eventually he loaned York to another man in Louisville, but by then, York's wife was gone from that area and had moved to Mississippi, so even Mm -hmm. when he got a chance to go back, she wasn't even there, and he's in the employ of someone else, Yeah, just being passed around. York's temporary owner, whom Clark had chosen to send him to, was notorious for physically abusing his laborers. So I think this was
0: a pretty calculated move on Clark's part to try and Yeah. Especially with someone that he grew up with. He probably did research on this person and was just kind of fed up with with York, which again is I mean, there's no other way to say it. Like it's just a very, very sad and disturbing situation. It is.
1: After this, York's trail kind of goes cold again, and it wasn't until 1832 that Clark mentions York again when he finally frees him. It's around this time. I don't know if it's exactly 1832. There's reports that it's earlier in like 1815. So somewhere in that time period is when York gains his freedom. But Clark's clear disdain for his former companion is evident by this point because he writes that York's business has failed spectacularly and that York would rather be a slave again than be free. So even as a free man, he didn't really get any respect. And Mm -hmm. as a free man, York slips through the cracks in a system that was meant to keep African Americans repressed. So there's a lot of claims that he might have gone out to the West. There's other claims that he died of cholera in Tennessee, but whatever his fate was, York was truly indispensable as a part of the core of discovery and never got his due after everything was said and done.
0: In my mind, I'm just going to say that he moved out West and just had a Very great time. And that's that's why we that's why we never heard from from York. Yeah. The the story that Clark
1: tells is that he started a business as a wagoneer and Mm -hmm. that he started raising horses and stuff like that. So hopefully that just went well for him and he was able to kind of build a life.
0: I know, and nothing else happened. Nothing went wrong. (laughs) I hope. Please God. (laughs) I mean, yeah, three years on a journey that you didn't sign up for, you weren't paid for, you weren't recognized for at the time. Like we are starting to recognize and tell these stories now but at the time you have to think like what was all of that for like right. what is like what's life's purpose if i'm if i have to do this unbelievable task and not get anything for it
1: yeah but at the same time then you're hearing from all these people that are like you got this awesome opportunity to go out where no one's ever been and while right. all these other people are s- stuck on the
0: farms and stuff so yeah like you got to see the world well did you, in a way, yeah, I guess, but not in a way that like was fun,
1: right? So uh, I should have mentioned this right away, but a lot of the information that I had on York came from Smithsonian Magazine and Washington Post. They had a couple of very good write-ups on York, but now we're gonna move on to something a little more lighthearted, and that's got to be all of the venereal disease <laughs> that went through the camp. Yeah,
0: gross. <laughs> yeah, truly yeah, gross. To put a To put it bluntly, these men were dogs. So uh, this is a very underreported but large part of the
1: Lewis and Clark journey uh, because syphilis was very prevalent in the United States by
0: this point. Oh, yeah. Syphilis had an unbelievable run in the U.S. and also came back to to Europe. And like we talked about in past episodes, (laughs) syphilis zombies.
1: Yep. So if you don't know what syphilis is, it's a sexually transmitted disease. It started... It, the first kind of reports of it is when it rips through Europe three centuries before the William and Clark expedition yeah. and kind of came onto the scene right before the turn of the 16th century or the 14th into the or 15th into the 16th century. And it was when the French invaded Naples and then just kind of spread like a plague. <laughs> Yeah, so it was extremely virulent when it first started and it killed people in like a month. Yeah. So it was very deadly at first. But by the time it hit Lewis and Clark's expedition, it had died off in intensity quite a bit. Mm -hmm. Lewis and Clark prepared for this because they kind of expected the men of the journey to have contact with the native women, but they didn't expect it to the extent that it happened, I don't think.
0: (laughs) Yeah, they didn't. There's no way to prepare oneself for 50-plus, like, 20-year-old men, or, like, young, vile men. Yeah, exactly.
1: So, according to the journals of the men, multiple tribes did offer their women to these white men as a way to show acknowledgement, as a way to kind of be peaceful with them. And apparently, the group passed on some of the tribes at first without accepting the offer, but Later on, they started accepting those offers, and that's when the encounters began to spread the disease through the core of Discovery.
0: Yes, and dang, did that spread! Yeah,
1: but I also that's an also a funny point to me is that in the journals they're talking about, oh, we didn't take them up on those offers. I'm, yeah, okay. you're with a group of 40 20 something year old men who yeah. are supposedly strong and single, so I think there's probably something going on behind the backs of. Lewis and Clark, that these men aren't talking about.
0: Do you think they wrote in their journals purposefully like this? Like, oh, they were offered to us. Oh, I'm sure. It was, everything's fine. We're we're fine. <laughs> we it's, didn't do anything bad. It's one
1: of those things where you're lying by omission, where you can, you're pretty much yeah. turning your back to these guys and saying, okay, I hope no one goes off and disobeys that and goes and sleeps with these women. Yeah. And then you're just not acknowledging it. So, the preferred treatment for syphilis at the time was through mercury.
0: Okay. (laughs) Dude, this is... We've talked about it a hundred times. I don't want to live in any other... Nope. ...time other than right now. Yep. Because treating anything with mercury just through the knowledge that we have now, like, that's just not a
1: thing. Exactly. According to author David J. Peck, mercury is actually toxic to the bacterial organism that causes syphilis, so it kind of works and can be effective at treating
0: the symptoms... But it is
1: also toxic to the patient that carries the disease.
0: Yeah. Like there's, it doesn't just target one thing. If you're going to do, yeah. do mercury, you're going to do mercury, you're going to do it all the way. Are you going and doing mercury with your friends again, Dylan? No. <laughs> Gosh, mom, you won't understand. Also, I'm itchy. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I'm salivating a lot. Yeah. Lewis and Clark reportedly gave their men topical mercury treatments for several weeks or until the men began to salivate. Ew,
0: topical mercury. So Just rub, rub it on your body. Can someone pass the mercury? <laughs> yeah. It's never been used. Ever. Like now
1: we have CBD creams and then right. they just had mercury creams. <laughs> At the time, physicians believed that salivation meant that the disease was leaving the body from oh. these mercury topical ointments. But now we know that salivation is a sign of mercury poisoning. <laughs> We know now. <laughs> Thanks to science. Yes. The natives actually did have their own ways of remedying the disease, and they used different natural medicines, like roots and stuff, to abate the symptoms. Mm-hmm. But Lewis and Clark were like, I don't, I don't think those work. We're going to have to stick with the mercury. We're
0: going to use modern science. <laughs> what did these, quote, savages, unquote, Yeah, exactly. know about, about healing? Anything. The mercury apparently did help the men
1: of the Lewis and Clark expedition enough because they all survived their ailments on the journey, but the men also decided that they were going to use mercury for other things, specifically to shit. Yeah. According to Smithsonian Magazine once again, experts don't only rely on the journals and maps from Lewis and Clark to trace their journey, but they also use the latrines. The journey stopped at more than 600 sites, according to their journals, and some of them were only their home for about a day, but each of these had a pit that was dug to use as a bathroom. And this is how experts traced the footsteps of the journey. According to author Kirsten Fawcett, writing for Mental Floss, quote, "...today's doctors would shudder at the thought of patients ingesting what's essentially mercury poisoning in a pill." But during the 18th century, calomel was a go-to drug for many conditions, including constipation. And sure enough, Lewis and Clark's journals mention their men taking a popular remedy called Dr. Rush's bilious pill, which was a fast-acting purgative that contained a whopping 10 grains of calomel per serving, end
0: quote. The word bilious is the grossest word that we've talked about. I don't even know episode, what that means. we said syphilis.
1: What does bilious
0: even mean? Also, Dr. Rush's. Billy is affected by or associated with nausea or vomiting. Well, I'm just picturing, come on, man, you got to pull through. You got to pull through. And then he starts salivating. Oh, all right. You're over the hump. You're in the clear, kid. You're over the limit. Yeah. you've <laughs> Too much
1: mercury. But yeah, so the, Pills were so strong that people called them thunderclappers or thunderbolts. Oh, wow. But since mercury doesn't decompose, it's still present. It's still, it's not still president. It's still present in the latrine pits from the journey to this day. That's crazy. It's been hundreds of years. (laughs) Right. So uh, as I texted Evan about this
0: before we recorded last week, talk about a shitty job, (laughs) literally. That's so gross. Like, it's just in there does mercury have a like hallucinogenic effect at all like does it, it so. doesn't alter your mood or your no. attitude at all right it's literally so. just like it's just poignant. poisonous yeah <laughs> that's so funny
1: yeah so that that was why well, i mean because mercury is the thing we put in thermometers right yeah yeah so imagine just like breaking open a thermometer and just down in that
0: <laughs> yum he sounds delicious did you Where the hell is mercury even from? How did that become... Mercury. (laughs) That's nice. That's its own story. Like, How did mercury have such a come up that it's the the primary use for a majority of ailments? Because I mean, even
1: when I did research on Blackbeard, they used mercury as a treatment for syphilis in that time. So that's like a decade or so before all of this happens. So I don't know when it started being used, but they were just on a mercury binge binge for a while.
0: Yeah, it doesn't make any... I just Googled where does mercury come from. Have not gotten a straight answer yet. (laughs) Science. I mean, it does occur, quote, abundantly in the environment, and it's in minerals. But who had the idea of like burning coal is one example I'm seeing here and putting on your your syphilis-ridden genitals. (laughs) We are not scientists.
1: So if any scientists out there have an answer... I mean, we I would are, love to hear it. As I mentioned last week, we're in the end days. We can just start spitballing stuff. So, <laughs> Right. Oh, yeah, that's true. The end is
0: nigh. Nice, so. Mercury
1: comes from prairie dogs who ingest it, and then mm-hmm. they send it back out, and then it transfers into minerals.
0: Mercury comes from worms. That's yeah. <laughs> going full circle. There we go. You cut them um, in half and put it on, the your, mor- on your worm. Put the more you know star across mm. that entire
1: statement. All right. Mercury comes from worms. Yes. Okay, now we're going to get into the Native American perspective overall on the Lewis and Clark expedition. So naturally now, I think people who are familiar with the Lewis and Clark expedition know that this was not necessarily the best thing for the Native Americans in the long run, especially decades down the line once gold rush happens and all of these people start coming across. That's when it gets really bad.
0: Yeah, I saw one source, excuse me, as I... Go back here from the TribalCollegeJournal.org who talked about uh, the Native experience during this time and they describe it as like, and I quote here, the success of Lewis and Clark actually hastened the killing of many of the indigenous people and more firmly set the tone for the way the U.S. government would deal with Native Americans. End quote. So this was the... Format the template of how the U.S. government would "quote unquote" deal with Native Americans. It was try to give gifts, but like again, actively try to like take their land. And if that didn't work through the gifts, it's like all right, we're bringing in our muskets and our cannons, and we're going to move you. Right? Like it's it's really to the complete extremes in either way. And even if you accept the gifts, it'll then like in a few years. It'll be the other option. Right. Right. So, and also with Lewis and Clark documenting everything, like, they know the U.S. government later in the very bad times knew where to find these Native Americans. Oh, yeah. So, like, there was no, like, element of surprise if a tribe was trying to fight back. It's like, okay, no, this is your food source. These are the plants you rely on for medicine. These are your customs. We can exploit them in a lot of different ways. Well, so, they're... A lot of the research that I did was, it was the core of discovery, but a lot of that discovery was also how to exploit these people. Oh, yeah. In the different ways, again, like with their customs, again, the food source being uh, buffalo. And then <laughs> we killed all the buffalo. Yeah, we did that. So it's, it is a very dark spot on this whole like the whole Lewis and Clark expedition, like these people, like the Mandans, they literally kept the core of discovery alive throughout that entire summer. Gave them Buffalo meat and corn to, to survive a North Dakota winter Yeah, when they didn't have like real, they didn't have heat systems (laughs) And North Dakota winters. Like they get crazy snow. Like
1: there's no space heaters. (laughs) There's no space heaters, right? There's
0: no shacks to put up for ice fishing. Yeah. Right. So, and also just trying to find their way. Like there's no way that Lewis and Clark could know how to navigate the different tributaries. Oh yeah. Go down the Missouri. Yeah. Well, the Missouri River, if I'm not yep. mistaken. So it's not that picture of Lewis and Clark being again the tamers, the conquerors of the West of this untamed land, like it goes without saying there were people there. Yeah. <laughs> who literally showed them and literally guided them. The entire way. They yep. were almost never without a Native American scout, a Native American representative truly pointing them in the right direction. Yeah,
1: exactly. And to the point of them exploiting this whole area once they got the journals back, the journals didn't officially get published in a book form for years after Lewis and Clark got back. They couldn't find a publisher. There was a guy that tried to transcribe them and like summarize them into a book form. It took them years before Mm -hmm. that all got done. So it was like over a decade before any of this was available publicly. So until that happened, all of this was in the, the hands of the government. Yeah, the government, if you know anything, Andrew Jackson got in there after this and he did not have a good run of doing anything.
0: So, (laughs) Andrew Jackson is a top five, like, dick of U.S. history, big
1: old villain. Yeah. So, once he gets in power and he has all of this information at his ready, he's the only one that really knows anything about it and he can kind of paint the narrative from there. So, 100%. Yeah.
0: And he can, again, exploit. Make it seem like it was the Native Americans who started just about any skirmish. So, like, okay, they started it. We have to go in and erase them from the earth.
1: Especially when we had the French Indian Wars and stuff. Yeah. So, it's like we already have them painted as villains in some aspect, anyways. So, right. Yeah. Right.
0: But, like, with in addition to what the Mandans did, like the Shoshone and the Salish, apologies for most likely mispronouncing that last one. Like they gave them horses. Like you can't go through the mountainous passes that they went through without horses to carry all of your stuff. Right. Like there's no way that they could survive in different places without learning where to catch salmon or like find the right routes. Like we talked about York being the medicine man. Like he didn't know where to find these routes. Like it had to be like the Nez Pierce and the different tribes are like around the Columbia Plateau like, provided them with food, which we talked about last week, was dogs. Yeah. They provided food, shelter, women, in cases. Um, So there is no Lewis and Clark without the Native Americans and their unbelievable help, most likely done to garner the favor of, you know, the impending, just to call what it is, invasion, so that their people didn't... Didn't get the worst of it, and... or there
1: was instances too of Native Americans who had had interactions with white people before, who had helped them, mm-hmm. and then once the white, like once Lewis and Clark showed up, those people who had been helped in the past, it might have been just one person, then before the Native American tribes saw these white men and thought, oh well, maybe these are enemies, maybe we should attack, and then that one person who had had an interaction with them before said, mm-hmm. no, they're they're usually friendly, like they helped me, like right. you should go talk to them first and see. So yeah, it it's a lot of that. And this isn't to say like Lewis and Clark obviously weren't the first white men who that or white people that these people had interacted with. As I mentioned earlier, there's Russians, there's French, there is Spanish, there's British. They were all there like over a century before Lewis and Clark got there. But the thing that was different is because they were all fur traders, and they were mm-hmm. just trying to establish trade with these people. And they had already had a, a huge impact on the Native Americans before Lewis and Clark got there. For example, Evan mentioned horses, and mm-hmm. the simple introduction of horses changed a lot of these tribes from subsistence farming to nomadic hunting tribes, because they could get around faster. They could track buffalo a lot easier. Mm-hmm. And then by the time Lewis and Clark arrived, a lot of the tribes had already started to suffer heavy losses from smallpox and tribes like the Mandan, who they wintered with, who had enough people to inhabit nine tribes at one point, were down to two by the time Lewis and Clark got there. So there was stories of the Mandan that had said, yeah, we had to abandon entire villages. We burnt them to the ground. And there was only like 40 of us that came out of it alive because of the smallpox epidemic. So it had already kind of started that these Native Americans were associating the white people with misfortune. With death. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. And uh, one of the biggest things that they learned was like, if we see white people, they're coming to trade and we know that they're all in competition with each other for trade. Mm -hmm. And that in turn led to the Natives competing with one another to trade with the white people because they got weapons from them. Then they could be better at intertribal warfare. Mm -hmm. So a lot of it just enhanced already existing already existing hostilities between right. not just white people and the native Americans, but native Americans and other native Americans. Right.
0: One has guns. Yeah. the Other doesn't. So that there has to then get guns. Yeah. Equal the Equal the playing field. It changes the entire power balance between yeah. all of these tribes that have existed for
1: decades and centuries before we got there. So a lot of that just really, it, it changed the entire societal landscape of the native Americans. And, the biggest difference between the fur traders and Lewis and Clark is that the core discovery wasn't just a journey to set up trade. It was a journey to set up for expansion. Like mm. that's the end goal at the end of the day. And this set the stage for all of the mass migration that would come decades later. And the, as Evan mentioned, the Buffalo all got annihilated. And there was an article that I found online that was written in 2004 in it. It was published in call. Uh, I'm going to, Probably get this pronunciation wrong, but Wakazosa Review is what the name of the publication was. And I found this quote pretty much a good summary of what actually happened afterwards. Quote Some Indians believe the expedition was the beginning of hard times for the tribes. Soon migration brought diseases, alcohol, and massive slaughter of the buffalo. The government eventually forced tribes onto reservations that were a fraction of their native lands. Mm -hmm. End quote. Pretty much
0: all there is to it at the end of the day. Yeah, that really sums it up pretty perfectly, like quite, quite frankly. Yeah. I mean, just to convey the Native American experience with Lewis and Clark, I actually found a great quote as well. It came from the Salish chief. And I quote here Since our forefathers first beheld Lewis and Clark, that's in quotations, more than seven times. Ten winters have snowed and melted. We were happy when they first came. We first thought they came from the light, but he comes like the dusk of the evening now. Not like the dawn of the morning, he comes like a day that is past, and night enters our future with him. In his poverty, referring to Lewis and Clark, we fed, we cherished them, yes, befriended them, and showed them the fords and, and showed them the fords of our lands. But he has filled graves with our bones. His course is destruction. He spoils with the spirit who gave us this country, made beautiful and clean. His laws never gave us a blade, nor a tree, nor a duck, nor a goose, nor a trout. How often does he come? You know he comes as long as he lives and takes more and more and dirties what he leaves.
1: Yeah, there, there's another quote that I read from a different chief from one of the tribes who was very like, uh, he liked Lewis and Clark after Mm -hmm. they left. He thought it was a good thing. And then he eventually contracted smallpox. And right before, like days before he died, he made a quote about Lewis and Clark and said, we didn't treat them badly at all. But now if you see them, treat them like dogs. They don't Mm -hmm. deserve our sympathy anymore. So for years he had been preaching like, no, they were good. Like, I think it'll help us. And right before he died, he realized, Ooh, I've, I've been viewing them wrong the whole time and he yeah. literally called them dogs and said don't treat them well at all if they come back
0: yeah I mean that's to be welcomed with such open arms and with the literal food because keep in mind like Jacob you mentioned like they were already there wasn't much food to go around at this point like there was already disease like they weren't doing great like the Mandans for example weren't doing great but they still shared food with Lewis and Clark right and that mindset just, just changed, and also gives a lot of context for during the westward expansion that ma- manifest destiny after the Civil War, in particular, like why it was always violent. It's like because yeah. we were violent first. Exactly. Like, we did not, or excuse me, the Native Americans welcomed us. They like helped Lewis and Clark. They gave, they pointed them in the right way. And like we take advantage of that, meaning the people of the time. We individually, me and you, didn't take advantage, but it yeah, kind of set the set the stage for a lot of later conflict uh, in in U.S. history, like Little Big Horn and yeah, and really exactly other examples.
1: And there's just there's uh, different records of other expeditions that go after Lewis and Clark yeah. who have way tougher times traversing some of the rivers through some of the tribal lands because these yep. people don't think that, they don't have any more respect for the white people anymore so they Mm -hmm. literally make it almost impossible for these people to pass and then obviously that leads to more conflict between the white men and the native americans because the white men just won't honor the fact that they can't go through right so then that leads to forceful ways through and more
0: deaths right like i will go through this river no matter what and here are my guns yep
1: so yeah it just this sets the precedent for all of that So for this next section, I got a lot of this information from a website called Learning for Justice. Uh, It did a very good write-up on the Native American perspective on this. And Lewis and Clark, despite the fact that they were indeed responsible for a historic feat we kind of talked about, it's not the fact that it's them that did it. They're not the ones that are truly to blame. It's just the Mm -hmm. fact that they were in that place at that time. But the credit that they get for it is obviously overdone. (laughs) And I've They put it in a really cool way. Uh, According to Marilyn Hudson, who is a part of the Mandan-Hidatsa tribe in central North Dakota, quote, As a schoolboy, you probably thought of Lewis and Clark chopping their way through a jungle, but they were on well-traveled trails. Our Mm -hmm. tribe drew them maps and told them, this is how you go up the Missouri to the Great Falls. They were given very specific directions. End quote. And she's not the only one who disagrees about how things were taught about Lewis and Clark. Writer and historian Bernard Devoto stated, quote, a dismaying amount of our history has been written without regard to the Indians, end quote. And that's true.
0: Oh, I mean, there's no... I've never... Think about just my experience. So I guess if you had a different experience, uh, listeners at home, whatever. But like, I was never given any context for... For um, the Native American perspective on this journey, it truly was Lewis and Clark with a machete cutting down yeah. redwoods, like something preposterous. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, without that context being taught, there's no way to know it, which is very sad that we don't dive into additional perspectives on historical events such as this yeah
1: and i mean like you mentioned right at the top of this section of the the episode without the native americans there's no lewis and clark like it it literally is impossible they they knew that they had literal trails to take these people through so they're not chopping through the forest no they were
0: on canoes a majority of the yeah exactly you're on a river (laughs) like as long as you know which way to turn then you're fine right like there's a fork Let's ask the people that have lived here for hundreds of years where to go. That know, yeah. It's I equate it to, like, if I or, for example, you go and you ask someone for directions and they point you in the right way, then like you're on your very merry way. Then I come, and I just shoot the people <laughs> instead. <laughs> that are trying to give me directions. Yeah, exactly. So like, make a bad impression. Like it's very, it's very sad. It is. Because Lewis and Clark, I mean. You have to give them some credit. Like, they didn't, they weren't the reasons that the Native Americans did not welcome white people. Like, a majority of their interactions were very peaceful. So, it's not like they were like the right. true reasons well, why like, that set up like for later expeditions. It's yeah, later expeditions that did it.
1: The biggest thing is just the migration, like the mass migration right. west. Like, that's, it's just that Lewis and Clark sped the process. Yeah. So, uh, f- still from that learning for justice. Uh, website, there is a man who was referenced named Blue Horse, who works with the Indian Education Program for Portland Public Schools. He brought up a lot of the same points and kind of said like, within a century of Lewis and Clark, every native nation was displaced and put on reservation. Every single one. The forests were cut, the Oregon Sea Otter, who was helpful in fueling Thomas Jefferson's mission, they were gone. And he basically said that glorifying exploitation as exploration is dangerous. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was probably the most impactful quote. It's like, exploitation versus exploration. They said that they were explorers, but they were exploiting. They weren't exploring.
0: Oh, 100%. And the fact that it took less than 100 years for Every single tribe to be moved.
1: It was basically less than a decade, because that's yep. when Andrew Jackson started all of it. So, yeah, it's a very quick turnaround.
0: God, Andrew Jackson, man. What a guy. We do need to power rank our, like, biggest assholes of history. He's, he's on a dollar bill, isn't he? He's on the 20 He's on the nice $20 bill. What a guy. Which equates to one grown-up dollar. <laughs> exactly. At this point.
1: Yeah, when you're 10 years old, that $20 bill is like $3,000. I am rich. I am so set for life. Yeah. So Marilyn Hudson, who I mentioned earlier, kind of once again reiterates these points and says that Lewis and Clark didn't discover anything. They just kind of showed up, mined the knowledge that the Native Americans had, and used it for a military exploration. Or a military expedition, not even (laughs) exploration. I guess you wouldn't even call it that. But overall... It's like
0: they read it. Sorry to interrupt. It's like they read the book... Like they read a book and then took credit for writing the book.
1: This is me beating a game with an online guide and saying, yeah, Yeah. I totally did that. (laughs) (laughs) But overall, in Native American circles, Lewis and Clark really aren't prominent figures. I read an Mm -hmm. entire article about the bicentennial in 2003 that took place where they kind of talk about we don't care about Lewis and Clark. And that's kind of where they say if it wasn't Lewis and Clark, it would have been someone else. So it's not really important to us. They're not really talked about, and rather than memorializing these explorers, the tribes at the time were trying to figure out how to deal with the diseases and all of these migrants who were following in the footsteps of Lewis and Clark. And they also just had to try and figure out the new way of life that the United States was bringing to them. As Native American studies professor at the University of Wisconsin and a member of the Blackfeet tribe emphasizes, Lewis and Clark were really, at the end of the day, ignorant to all of the beliefs and customs of these tribes. Hmm. So when they told the chiefs that they had a, quote, great white father who had sovereignty over them, the tribes probably didn't understand what they were meant, because they had no word for sovereignty, and they had no concept of being controlled by a higher authority. So, a lot of the Native Americans probably listened to them and then ignored what they said, because it didn't mean anything to them.
0: Right, like that and purchasing lands, like the classic story that Manhattan or Long Island was bought for literally nothing. Yeah, it was bought for like I don't I don't know the exact number, but it was let's just call it like it was bought for like a hundred dollars because like that just wasn't part of their culture. Like you yeah. can't own land, stupid. Right, but
1: then the us as Americans are like, oh yeah, we purchased this. Like this yeah. is ours now. I and have a deed, and the Native Americans are like, what do you mean? Yeah, like This belongs to everyone. The, the land doesn't belong to people. <laughs> All right,
0: like that's a piece of paper, Mr. Andrew Jackson. <laughs> and doesn't... then he
1: uses that to wipe you out. Yeah. Yes, yeah. exactly. But of course, at the end of the day, there's not a single Native American view of Lewis and Clark. They're very varied and different. Even within one tribe, there are different attitudes depending on who you talk to. And in the end, a lot of these tribes just want people to go and do their own research as much as possible and just come to their own conclusions on how they view Lewis and Clark. For example, the world has its own viewpoints on the deadly interaction that the Blackfeet tribe had with Lewis on the return journey when Lewis and Clark Mm. split up. So the accepted story that we talked about last week is that the natives and Lewis and his men came to an uneasy peace when they crossed one another and camped together for a night. But when the Blackfeet tried to steal the expedition's horses or their guns, depending on which story you read, the men of the expedition had to shoot the Blackfeet. The tribe has their own version of the story. According to them, two Blackfeet boys, who were aged 12 and 13, were on their way home when the expedition spotted them and invited the boys to camp. Lewis apparently insisted that they camp together and attempted to give them gifts, but in the middle of the night, the boys tried to leave the camp. At this point, one of Lewis's men woke up and stabbed one of the boys, and Lewis shot the other. Lewis then contended that the boys tried to steal the men's guns, and in response, they had to shoot them. But the story fails to tell how old the boys were and the fact that the white men constantly had their weapons on hand. And as one eight-year-old boy from the tribe stated when asked in a current article, quote, I think Lewis and Clark were bad guys, end quote.
0: Yeah, like, it's very important to get the two perspectives, because we know or we're taught that, yeah, like, they were men, like, it was tribe men, warriors, try and do steal horses where just boys just 12 year
1: old kids yeah and it paints it in such a different light like you're killing children either way that looks bad even if they are stealing your horses you're grown men yeah
0: you're a child murderer yeah
1: exactly and another quote from that same boy's uncle kind of stuck with me because he said we like to say we're the ones who discovered lewis and clark not Mm -hmm. that they discovered us yeah and in a way that's kind of how it went like they saved Lewis and Clark. They found them and they told them, "Hey, which way do we go?" Right. Yeah. Like they fed them,
0: like yeah, they took exactly. them in, treated them with all the hospitality.
1: Yeah. So now I kind of want to get into covering Sacagawea in in a more full light because her story gets very her story gets very chopped down and into a little section in a history book. We don't really get a lot of what her story actually means and who she actually was. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the info that I got from this was taken from, it was an article called The True Story of Sacagawea, written by Carolyn Gage. And apparently it was taken from a book called Sermons for a Hot Kitchen from the Lesbian Tent Revival.
0: (laughs) whoa so there's that i think i if there's any i'm just picturing just picturing like a fox news dad just heard that and they're like the liberal agenda in one sentence exactly (laughs) this
1: this reminds me of when i was listening to uh old coast to coast am episodes and there's this guy called jc who would call in and he always got mad at art bell for having the guests he had on he's like i know what all your guests are doing at their lesbian tupperware parties <laughs> and <laughs> i don't think i'll ever forget that line
0: <laughs> your lesbian tupperware parties yeah
1: so i think carolyn gage is kind of a feminist writer i didn't really look into who she is a lot but just based on like the article that i read in the book title i think that's kind of the lean that she has
0: but, i think there's some fair assumptions yeah to be made. <laughs> but the story the
1: story that she tells is very good so, first of all, there are multiple ways, as I mentioned, to reference the name of this person of Sacagawea, Sacagawea, Sakakawea. so there's a lot of different ways to refer to her, but no matter what you call her, her importance is always going to be the same in the story overall. At the end of the day, Sacagawea was born into the Shoshone tribe in Idaho around 1788. That's when we can kind of place her birth to. When she was around 11 or 12 years old, she was in a Shoshone hunting camp that was attacked by the Hidatsa tribe. During the attack, four Shoshone men and women, and additionally several boys, were all killed. After the massacre, Sacagaweo was taken captive. She is forced to walk all the way back to North Dakota with them, which is around 500 miles, at the age of 11 or 12. And at this point, she's an enslaved child who just witnessed a massacre of her friends and family.
0: Like, what a crazy upbringing. Like, what a very, very different upbringing. Yeah. I guess, like, I've never experienced true trauma. Not (laughs) like this, no.
1: And then, immediately after witnessing a massacre of her friends and family at Mm -hmm. age 11 or 12, she was living with a hidatsa as a slave, and a French trapper showed up. And he won a gambling game with the tribe. So to pay him, the Hidatsa gave him Sakagawea, who is maybe 13 at this point. So instead of being a captive of the tribe, she's now a slave to this man. Yeah. And before Sakagawea, he had already bought another Shoshone girl from the Hidatsa. So he called both of them his quote unquote wives. To a 13 year old. Yeah. As it's put in the article, this is basically a formalized child rape arrangement brokered by adults.
0: Again, do not want to live in any other time period. Nope.
1: Around age 14 is when Sacagawea conceives her first child, so maybe a year after she is quote-unquote married to yeah. this man. It is also around this time that Lewis and Clark showed up for their, winter, their wintering nearby in the Mondan tribes. And once they decided to continue after their winter was done, Charbonneau offered his and his "quote unquote" wife as services for translating. The fee for the services would be paid to the Frenchman, not to Sacagawea, who was the one doing the translating.
0: Which, again, this is probably something that's very just not no not realized. Like she was a teenager; <laughs> she was very young, and yeah. she has such important impact on on this entire trip like a 14 a year old
1: yeah and well in a lot of the storytelling of it you kind of think of it in the way like not directly told probably but you think of it like oh maybe she just volunteered to help them yeah and that's just not how it went at all
0: it that's exactly how it's told it's like yeah. oh and then they stumbled upon a fur trapper and his wife of perfectly normal age stop looking into it yeah like, exactly
1: So now, in the story where we're at, this pregnant teenager is in the service of a bunch of white dudes who she probably can't really understand, and to make matters worse, she gives birth to her child en route, and gets sick from it, and suffers from an inflammatory pelvic infection and perhaps a venereal disease, and comes very close to dying, but recovers. Then, she had to continue the journey as a teenage mother with a baby strapped to her back.
0: Yeah, like right after childbirth. Yeah. That's that. Wow. Yeah.
1: For nearly two years, she accompanies the Corpse of Discovery, just doing all of the same harsh traveling that they were. She translated for the men. She foraged for them. She cooked. She cleaned. She sewed. And importantly, she helped guide the men through the various passes and tributaries that they needed to take along the way. 14, 15 years old, has a kid almost died through the childbirth. And now you're trying to lead this expedition, pretty much. Lead 50-plus white men. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. In one instance, Sacagawea was responsible for saving many of the journals of the expedition when their canoe capsized and the men kind of froze up. She, on the other hand, kept a calm head and recovered the materials that were thrown into the water. So she pretty much saved Lewis and Clark's journals. Saved the entire history of it. She got a river named after her, that's a plus never got paid though oh (laughs) less of a plus (laughs) but arguably the most vital tool that she brought to the expedition was the fact that she was disarming because when the tribe saw the Corps of discovery by all accounts resembling a war party full of strong white men the tribe might have had a first instinct to attack and ask questions later depending on how the tribes had interacted with white men beforehand but seeing them with a Native American woman and a child was a symbol that these men more than likely came in peace rather than needing to fight. So it's a very simple thing, just her presence, but it probably saved them on multiple occasions. Yeah, they
0: put her up in the front of the line. She, they better have. It's like, don't
1: worry, we are with her. Yeah. When the men camped on the Pacific, there was an instance of a quote-unquote great fish that washed up on the beach, which is possibly a whale. No one really knows what they meant by that. And all of the men kind of freaked out and said, oh my gosh, we've never seen something like this before. But Sacagawea had to beg and plead with all of the men in the party to be allowed to go and see what it was. They were just they weren't just allowing weren't. her. Yeah. So it's a small event, but it really does encapsulate how little autonomy and respect she truly had amongst the group. And not long after the expedition ended, once they got back, Sacagawea is reported to have died. She lived only until 25, by most accounts, reportedly dying of typhus or perhaps the venereal disease that she contracted from Charbonneau. Along the way, there is one story that highlights how much she had to go through in her short life. When the expedition arrived at the Shoshone camp, which we talked about a little bit last week where she saw her brother and they bartered Mm -hmm. for horses. Sakagawea told the story of the massacre that she had witnessed and been captured after. And according to Lewis's notes in his journal, she was very unemotional in her retelling of it. But that's his view, viewing it from the viewpoint of a white male in the 1800s. Yeah. So, not really the most compassionate viewpoint of this. Like, she could also just be like holding it back. Exactly. Like holding back the emotions. Because in her mind, she may have had to detach from the events emotionally as a form of coping. Because by all accounts, she probably suffered from some sort of PTSD after that. 100%. Once they got to the camp, Sacagawea embraced another girl that she recognized when they arrived to the camp. And it turned out that this other girl was one of the other girls that she used to spend time with, who had also been a witness to the massacre as Sacagawea and... This other girl just managed to escape by jumping in a river and getting to the other side. Their embrace was said to be passionate and emotional, which is a stark contrast to how Lewis described her earlier in his journals. It pretty much just shows like she's a child who mm-hmm. she would seen so much death, so much sorrow, so much hardship. Like she just had this embrace with a girl who she knew from her childhood that had gone through a lot of the same things that she had. Not... The stuff after the massacre, but like seeing that as a child, it's going to be hard for anybody.
0: Do you remember, literally in history class, watching the Lewis and Clark like biopic? Mm-mm. So the way that depicts Sacagawea is completely different than the truth. She is a grown woman. Yep, she's shown as like basically best friends of Lewis and Clark. That's how we're also taught. Like she was. Like buddy buddy with Lewis and Clark, yeah, and it could not be farther from the truth. Like you mentioned, she had to beg to see a fish.
1: Yeah, exactly, and that's the next point that I have in my notes. Just like this whole retelling contrasts the prevailing narrative that most people think of, and they hear Sacagawea or Sacagawea, they see this strong heroic woman who made a choice to help these men on their impossible trek. Yep. But in reality, she was a girl with a baby strapped to her back, traveling thousands of miles with men who resembled the one who took her innocence and her independence. Mm -hmm. The whole time, pretty much seeing the same face over and over.
0: And would eventually, most likely, lead to her death from diseases caught.
1: Yeah. But this version of the story doesn't sit as comfortably as a heroine who did something for the greater good. The true story of Sacagawea isn't full of roses and sunshine, but rather represents an unflattering reality that was common most likely for a lot of native women. Reports on their journey vary, but it kind of remains a debate how willingly the Native American women offered themselves to these white men who came into their tribal homes. But if it's anything like Sacagawea's story, they may not have been as willing as some of these reports like to say.
0: Yeah, I'm guessing that Lewis and Clark are lying in their journals when they said that these women were offered to them of like their free will. And like in some of the documentaries
1: that I watched, they are, there are people that say this was kind of just a thing that the Native Americans did. They just, they didn't view sex the same way that mm. the, the white men did. And maybe that's true too. I don't know. It's a, this is a lot of customs that I don't understand fully. So,
0: Isn't that super, well, I shouldn't say super interesting, but more so sad that there is like a lot of, like we highlight other cultures. I will say a lot in America, like there's a lot of, interest in for example like greek mythology or like the history of greece or western civilization there's just so much interest there there's a lot of interest in uh like the aztecs for example like we learned so much about that story we learned so much about what their culture was there's so much still available about their culture there were hundreds of native american tribes Just from the start of Lewis and Clark, right? That's not even counting the ones on the East Coast that were already forcefully moved or eradicated. But we do not celebrate or get any, like, there's no interest in that culture, right? And it's a very rich history of our, it's American history. Yeah. For the people that were here before us. And there's literally no interest. There's no, like, I want to go to like this Native American festival, but we celebrate the hell out of like Cinco de Mayo. Right. So, or stuff like like nonsense like that. not nonsense for the Cinco de Mayo culture, but like we grasp like the white culture. We like grasp onto that and like, "Ooh, it's a fun little right. little celebration." But like we have no interest in the native American culture. Like I couldn't name a single native American holiday, but I can name several of other cultures yeah. from around the world. Well,
1: just for our specific upbringing, when we went to high mm-hmm. school, we took like different religious classes. Like we right? took classes yeah. on like other religions other than Christianity to learn about them. But like we didn't learn anything about native American culture or anything like that really. So yeah, yeah. Could,
0: could I could name a majority of the people in like the Iliad and like the odyssey. <laughs> yeah. Right. But I couldn't name you a single, I could probably name like three Native American heroes. Right. Which is very, very
1: sad. It is. So Native American oral traditions like to tell that Sacagawea returned to her tribal homelands and survived until 1884. Mm -hmm. So there is that side of it. There is a grave marker that represents that. But it is uncertain what her true fate is after the expedition uh, we do know that one of her children was taken by William Clark, as we mentioned, but I think the other one who was a girl that she had after Jean Baptiste, uh, I think, didn't survive too long after she had given birth to her. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it, we don't really know what her true fate was. It could have just been that Charbonneau wanted to get rid of her and said she died and then she went back. Yep. Like, that could be the case. Could be that she did die when she was 25. We don't really know truly what happened so it's kind of up for whatever you want to believe I like to think that she went back to her, the Shoshone homelands and lived until like 95 or whatever it would be
0: yeah again like same with York I like to think that they went back and nothing bad happened during their lifetime Yeah,
1: gilded lenses for this one I think. yes <laughs> so but yeah I mean that's kind of my what I have on it for this week it's as we mentioned it's not as fun <laughs>
0: No, I mean, but it's important, like, it's not, like, our usual, like, goofy history, right. but it's an important perspective to give, because I say this all the time before doing the true research, like, I didn't know a lot of this, yeah, like, I, I didn't mean- know that, like, I had no idea that, uh, Zaka Gawea, apologies for mispronouncing again. I had no idea she was 13. Yeah, like, she's I thought a kid. It was, I thought it was the other version. So I thought she I. was like a woman that's like, I'll help these white men. Yeah, she's like, I mean, even
1: a night at the museum, she's like a full-grown woman. Oh, yeah, that's like, right. She's not a kid. She's not
0: 15 years old. I totally forgot about that Right, like she's
1: a freshman in high school. Think of it that way. Right. She's a freshman in high school helping lead one of the most historic expeditions in American history. Carrying a baby. On her back. <laughs> dude that's insane yeah yeah true uh truly i i cannot imagine yeah she's uh like it's almost more awe-inspiring that mm-hmm. way though like viewing it from the true lens like the fact that she was so strong and i mean it was strength that she was forced to carry i mean it's not like she asked for that right so yeah it's very interesting the dogs like her too i guess yeah you're in <laughs> that a little bit? Yeah. <laughs>
0: I'm guessing that's the Amazon man. He's delivering packages again? Yep. <laughs> What'd you order this time? This is most likely gifts for them, I'm not gonna lie to you. Like I think we got them Christmas sweaters and Christmas like stockings. Your dogs are more like pampered than I, I've ever been in my life. It's I I forget like the actual acronym, but I think it goes dual income parents without kids. Like Dual income, dual income, dipwax, dipwax. <laughs> <laughs> that's what I'm going to call you. No, about. I think it's dual income pet parents without kids. <laughs> so it's still dipwax, dipwax. Yeah,
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, that, that's that's our coverage uh, on Lewis and Clark. That wraps it up for us, I think. So yeah, I yeah. hope you guys learned something for this because I mean, the, I think this episode is a lot more enlightening than obviously the last episode. We just kind of told you the narrative we gave you a little more detail um, Mm on where they stopped what they did rather than or more than the history books i
0: should say but yeah i like this is i don't want to say fun history but it is quite honestly like fun and important to learn stuff like this because because like there i had no idea like we talked about like there's no way to know unless you do the research into it and actively look for different perspectives yeah And this makes me feel worse as a
1: white person, like knowing that we sent a kid with a baby on your back through all of this, you know, but that's what I mean when I said, like, it makes you look at yourself differently when you learn actual history. Like,
0: yeah. And I guess I wouldn't say like, if you're, if you want to like start getting into history more and diving into like these different perspectives, you do need to be prepared for the truth. Like the truth is written by the victor. And quite frankly, the United States government was the victor here, and we are shown the best light possible.
1: Ignorance is bliss in a lot of stuff yes. that we learn. Like the less you know, the better for your personal, like the the way you view everything in your own life. You know, mm-hmm. so it it does really shape the reality that you live up to, or you live in once you learn more about like where everything started and where it got to. So,
0: right? I mean, you have to you have to know that. Like, you have to. I think it's very important to like. Be curious about that. Yeah, like not every. Don't trust your government, kids. It's basically what always comes down. (laughs) We've been
1: saying it for a while. Been saying it for three
0: years. (laughs) Literally, the title of one of our episodes
1: on Ruby Ridge, I think, is "Don't Trust trust the Government." Yeah. So, Evan, do you want to plug our socials that I've been neglecting for the past two weeks? (laughs) Yeah. So you can
0: find us and continue the conversation on X at Gems underscore History. You can find Jacob at Jacob from Wisco, myself at Wodevskis, and then you can also find us on all the other social medias, Instagram, YouTube, TikTok. Maybe on the last episode, I'll nail this flawlessly. Good. Uh,
1: By the head, I won't be using any of them anymore.
0: (laughs) (laughs) But you can find us on all the different social medias. Just search Gems of History Podcast, and we will show up. Sweet. Yeah, I was
1: going like through my research this week, and I was on my way here. I'm like, I don't think I've posted for the last two weeks that we posted episodes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, whatever. People know. The people that know, know. Oh,
0: yeah, if you know, if you, you know.
1: If you're here, thank you. Uh, um, yeah, that's all we got. All right, guys. Everyone have a great week. We love you. Getting to the end of the year, everyone make sure you're safe and having fun with your holiday celebrations that are coming up. I know there's a lot of stuff in the next month and a half that needs to be done, so don't kill each other on Black Friday. Yeah, don't. <laughs> that, or I guess Black Friday is like a whole week now, so.
0: Yeah, no, no stampeding, folks. Yeah, that's still a couple weeks, but <laughs> it's coming up. Yep. Like My friend
1: was just like, man, I got to start Christmas shopping. I'm like, it's not even Thanksgiving yet. Yeah, Dude, I still down have there, my buddy.
0: mustache from Halloween. Thank you. <laughs>
1: Saddle down there, buddy. All right, guys, everyone have a great week. We love you. Stay polished.